Good morning, and welcome to On Target, a radio ministry of Village Bible Church in Hot Springs Village. We are located near the Coronado Center at 100 Ponderosa Way. Our Sunday morning service starts at 9.15 a.m. We hope you will enjoy and benefit from the sermon you will hear this morning. Now sit back and relax as you listen to a message by Senior Pastor Dr. Jason Lancaster. Over the years, I've, I've done a, a lot of weddings. Um, since moving here, I've not done many. One. Um, I've done a lot of the opposite. I've done a lot of funerals and memorial services. And it's interesting that at memorial services or funerals, people usually have an opinion of where that person is at now. I mean, they're sure there's some that don't believe in, in heaven or hell, but most people do, and they have the, an idea whether the person is in heaven or hell. And, and the people in the congregation tend to have three different categories or three different views that I see when I'm preaching a funeral that, that collide. And the first view is, number one, that God is the just and merciful judge. Now, this is, this is the, the view I preach at funerals, that God is just and his just condemnation will either fall on Jesus or the sinner. And because Jesus' is life, death, and resurrection, if the person trusted in Christ for salvation, then all the wrath has been poured on Jesus and they've been saved and we celebrate and we say, praise God. It's a, it's a welcoming home service. And so we're excited for those services. Well, there's some that are sitting in the congregation that don't believe that. They believe in view number two, which is meet me halfway. Now in this view, people are in heaven or hell based upon how much they cooperated with God and their good works. So good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. There are people that believe that probably almost at every single funeral. And number three, the view I want to call, it's all good. So everyone in the world basically is in heaven and God is forgiving. He lets everything slide and it's all good. Now, just about every funeral or memorial service I preach, there's this tension in the air because people have different views of what happened to the dead person. And these different views uh, collide with one another and there is tension. I mean, every single time there, there is tension because these contrasting views of judgment collide and they make people uncomfortable. That's kind of what's going to happen today. As we get into the word of God, some of you are going to feel very uncomfortable because I'm going to talk about God's judgment from the Bible, and it may collide with your view of the afterlife. And I guarantee you, I'm really not trying to make you uncomfortable. I'm simply trying to explain what the Bible says about who God is and about judgment. If he's revealed something in his word, we study it because we're called Village Bible Church. And since this is in the Bible, we're going to talk about it. So you ready for this? Go to Romans 3. Go to Romans 3. And let's jump right into it. We finally have made it to Romans 3, but unfortunately, we're still in the bad news portion. Because the good news is not really good news unless the bad news is really bad news. 
You can't have the good news of the gospel without the bad news being really bad. And so far we've seen that all people are offending a holy and righteous God. Remember chapter one of Romans, we've seen that the Gentiles are breaking bad. The Jews want to point fingers and say, look at those bad Gentiles. We're breaking good and getting better. But Paul says, no, you Jews are just as guilty. All of us are culpable of being in sin and offending a holy God and apart from Christ, All of us are guilty before God. Now, as we come to chapter three, Paul is going to elaborate on the judgment of God. And he's gonna make a connection between the judgment of God and God's faithfulness. Chances are you've never thought about this before. That God is a faithful God, even in judgment. And we're gonna say it over and over again that God is faithful both in blessing and in judging. I mean, we tend to out of our mouth say, well, when we get blessed, oh, God is so faithful. But we never think about his faithfulness in judgment. Now, before we jump, jump into chapter three, there are two things you need to understand. Number one is that this passage is extremely difficult to process and understand. And, and the reason why is, is the second reason is that Paul is using this technique called a diatribe, where he's in a conversation with an imaginary opponent. And the opponent is raising questions that Paul is assuming that the Jew would make. And so he's answering these questions. And there's a lot of questions and there's a lot of answers. So to keep it simple, we're going to look at three questions. All right, break it down like this. Question number one is going to be, what is the value of being in the people of God? Question number two, does the unfaithfulness of some of God's people make them unfaithful? And question number three, is God's wrath just? You need to remember that Paul is talking to someone who is a self-righteous Jew, a religious person who thinks they're in good with God because of their good works. Remember that. Question number one, let's do it. Chapter three, verses one and two, what is the value of being in God's people? Look at it, chapter three. Then what advantage has the Jew? What is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect, First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. So Paul is imagining this imaginary opponent would push back and say, what advantage has the Jew? If Jews are just as guilty as Gentiles, then what is the advantage of being a Jew? Now they expected Paul to say, there is no advantage to being a Jew because you're just as guilty and as sinful as the Gentiles, but Paul shocks them and tells them that the advantage of Jew is great in every respect. Look at verse two. Great in every respect. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. And this is a reference to the word of God. They have the Old Testament law and the great promises of the Messiah who will deliver them from their sin. It is a great advantage to being a Jew because you have the word of God that speaks about salvation in the Messiah. Now, Paul's argument to the Jew could be made to us who have grown up in church because many of us think and may say to ourselves, well, if baptism doesn't save, and if confirmation class doesn't save, and if church membership doesn't save, and having the Bible doesn't save us, what is the advantage to being growing up in a church? Well, the advantage of growing up in a church is that at least you had exposure to the truth of God's word. At least you had exposure to the gospel. I was speaking to a college student once who 
had grown up in the church. He had gone with the flow through high school, but now he was in college and he no longer claims to be a Christian. And you may wonder, what was the advantage of that guy growing up in a church? Well, the advantage was at least he heard the gospel. At least he was exposed to the truth of God's word. But his access to the truth didn't save him or give him an advantage or a free pass from judgment because it's not about access to the truth, but it's about embracing the truth that matters. Some people will think, okay, I'm in church. I was born a Christian. I took my confirmation class. I'm already, I know God, I'm going to heaven. But Paul's argument, access to the truth does not mean that you have embraced the truth. Let me show you something. Okay, in a little bit here, this little cup here, we're gonna take the Lord's Supper. We're gonna do it here in just a bit. Now get this. I wanna ask you this question. What right do you have to take this meal? What right do you have to the table of God to take the Lord's Supper? The self-righteous religious person would say, I have every right to take that meal because I went to confirmation class. I have every right to take that meal because I was baptized. I have every right to take that meal because I walked an aisle one day. And what Paul's going to be doing is pushing back on the self-righteous religious person and to show them that God's, God's condemnation on them is just as just as it is on the unbelieving Gentile. My brothers and sisters, you may not think this matters, but this matters. We're either, either gospel people or we're religious people. And the world does not need religious people going through the motions, pointing the finger. The world needs gospel people bringing them the truth and the love of God and the grace of God and the forgiveness of God. This past week, I watched a documentary on someone you may not even know who this is, but the documentary was on Selena Gomez. If you don't know who that is, it's okay. Uh, she used to date Justin Bieber, if that tells you anything. You're like, who's Justin Bieber? It's okay. Well, that's another. Pop, she's a pop singer, okay? Now get this. In this documentary, it, it's, it's crazy because she has so much guilt and self-condemnation for the things she's done in the past and mix that with the physical problems she's having, mental problems she's having, emotional problems she's having. It, it can be a pretty depressing documentary. Now, she does not need a religious person to go up to her and say, all of this has happened to you because you're not like me. If you would have done your stuff right like me, your life wouldn't be the mess that it is right now. She doesn't need that. She needs a gospel person to talk to her about the love of God in Jesus Christ, the forgiveness through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. She needs grace, not this compounding of law. And that's what Paul is whacking against right now is those self righteous religious people pointing their fingers saying you could get in good with God if you were like me. You got that? That's what Paul's going after. Which brings us to question number two. 
does the unfaithfulness of some of God's people make him unfaithful? All right, look at verse three. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? Now follow the train of thought here. God promised salvation to Israel through the Messiah. Most of Israel rejected the Messiah. They have a history of breaking God's law, idolatry, deportation. So they rejected the Messiah. And if you look at verse 3 again, the question is, does their unbelief nullify the faithfulness of God? In other words, does the sin of some of the Jews cancel out the faithfulness of God to the Jews? You see, the assumption on part of the Jews was since God promised salvation to the nation, then all Jews would be saved. However, we know that every individual won't be saved. But does that mean that God has been unfaithful? Now, you would expect Paul to say this. God has been faithful in saving some of the Jews. But that's not what he says. And that's not what he's getting at. What he's going to say is that God has been faithful in judgment. Remember the question, does the unfaithfulness of some of God's people make him unfaithful? And the answer is no, because God's going to be faithful whether he's going to save you or whether he's going to judge you. God will remain faithful in both. Explain that. Well, look at verse 4. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, May it never be. Rather, let God be true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So God's faithfulness is seen even in his judgment. Did you see that? God, you're justified in your words and prevail when you're judged. He's proven to be faithful and righteous and just. Because God's judgment of sinners shows the faithfulness of God because it reveals his holiness. And we could also say that it highlights his righteousness and his glory. So this is David right here saying, God, you are just and you're holy and your righteousness, even in a sinner like me who committed adultery and then had Bathsheba's husband killed, David is saying, you're faithful in your judgment. God even gets glory in sending people to hell because it highlights his holiness, righteousness, and faithfulness. God is going to get the glory either way, saving you or condemning you. Now, that may be really striking because you say, well, God wishes that none should perish. Absolutely. But when they do, he still gets the glory. Let me tell you why this is a troubling statement for many of you. And I think it's because many of us have this thought in the back of our mind that God's omnibenevolence, omnibenevolence, that's a big word, omnibenevolence, which is saying that God is all loving and all good. We seem to think that that is God's overriding attribute, that his omnibenevolence will override everything else. But what we don't understand is that, yes, he is love. 
But his love, you ready for this? His love can coexist with his holiness and his righteousness and his justice. So we don't just override and say, well, his omnibenevolence will, will, will override everything else. No, no, it can coexist together, which means God is going to get the glory in displaying his love and saving sinners, and God is going to get the glory and his faithfulness will be shown in condemning sinners because it will highlight his holiness and righteousness and judgment. Now you may think that's, that's a lot there. That's a lot there. But David confirmed it. Say, God, you are faithful in your judgment. Many times throughout Israel's history, they said, God, you are faithful in your judgment. And here we are as, as New Testament Christians, and we can say, God, you are faithful in your judgments. Which brings us back to the question once again, what right do you have to take this meal? What right do you have to this table of communion? And the religious person would say, I have every right because I've done the good things. And what we're seeing right here is, no, God is a holy God. And we've all offended him equally. And Paul is kind of trying to smack the self-righteous person. And once again, my brothers and sisters, this matters because the world does not need self-righteous religious people. The world needs gospel people. I keep saying that. People filled with grace and mercy in Jesus to hold out the gospel. And I know a lot of you who have done things in your life and you feel that finger pointing at you and say, that's on you. If you would have had your act together, you wouldn't have gone through that. That's why we need gospel people to say, yes, I have sinned, I have fallen short, but there's grace and there's mercy and there's compassion in Jesus for all who turn to him. Do you see the importance of where we're going today? That Paul is continuing to smack down the self-righteous person because we need to be gospel people centered in Jesus Christ. Which brings us to the last question. Number three, is God's wrath just? Start with verse five. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That a God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I'm speaking in human terms. So Paul's opponent gets what he's saying. He said, okay, so Paul, you're saying that my sin highlights God's righteousness and God gets glory in the condemnation of sinners. It's, it's like this. Once, once I, um, I had a, a different wedding ring and I lost it. I have no idea how I lost it. And so I thought, I don't want to spend a lot of money on another wedding ring, so I'm going to order one for $9 on Amazon. So I ordered this ring on Amazon, and it, it didn't fit. And, and you may be thinking, dude, just go to a jeweler and get a ring, and you'll be fine. But see, I know what jewelers do. Jewelers lay out that, that, that black mat, you know what I'm saying? And then they put that ring right in the middle, that ring I can't afford, and it highlights how special it is. And, and that's what, what Paul is doing here is that God's punishment of sinners highlights his holiness. It highlights his righteousness. It highlights his faithfulness. It, it seems that we really seem kind of just struck by the reality that God's judgment 
can be a faithful action that highlights his faithfulness. We don't really think about judgment too much. The evangelist Paul uh, Washer, I don't know if you know him, but he was going to go speak at this campus um, of an antagonistic crowd speaking to college students. And before he was speaking to this antagonistic crowd, he said, let me tell you something. What I'm about to tell you is going to make a lot of you mad. And it's going to be very hard to hear. So I'm forewarning you before I tell you this to get ready. And he goes, all right, here goes. And then he said this, God is good. And one of the guys pushed back and said, what's wrong with that? And Paul Washer said, God is good. You are not good. What does a good God do with someone like you? And that is the ultimate question, right? What does a good God do with someone like me and someone like you? That is the question of the ages. And so for the Jew, they would say, I'm good too. So God, what he's going to do with me is goodness. Let the Jew continue to argue here as we finish up verses 5 through 8. Look what Paul's opponents say. Verse 5. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I'm speaking in human terms. May it never be, for otherwise how would God judge the world? But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and as some clay that we say, let us do evil that good may come, their condemnation is just. So Paul is stating his opponent's argument in a very crass way. He's basically saying this. Okay, Paul, so what you're saying is that sin highlights God's faithfulness and judgment. So therefore, we should sin more so that God can display his faithfulness and judgment. Paul, that's a silly argument. God's not like that. And yet... They can't deny the judgment of God because they totally believe that the judgment of God falls on those pagan Gentiles and not the self-righteous Jew. And what Paul is saying is, no, we are all equal opportunity sinners and God's wrath justly falls on the Gentile as well as the Jew, as they both have offended a holy God and a righteous God, and he is totally just in sending them to hell, and that will display his faithfulness. On Friday night, my wife and I watched a, a, a Christmas movie with uh, our youngest daughter, and Christmas movies always have to end in a good way, of course. It was kind of like a Hallmark movie where the guy gets the girl, they kiss, and they live happily ever after. Well, if Romans 3 was a Christmas movie, uh, the Jews would say, okay, what's going to happen at the end is all the pagan Gentile sinners will be judged and all us religious people would be saved. And what Paul is saying, no, the way the movie ends is that all of us are equally condemned, the end. That's not a very good movie. 
And that's why Paul says, if we're all equally condemned, and that shows God's justice and God's faithfulness and holiness and righteousness, what are we to do? And this brings us back to King David. I want you to think of me for a moment. Committed adultery with Bathsheba. He had um, her husband killed. According to the law of God, what is supposed to happen to David? He's to be killed. So where should David appeal? God can show his judgment, righteousness, holiness, and judging David. David's like, that is true. That's what you can do. So what David does, he doesn't appeal to God's law. He appeals to God's mercy. And this is what he does. And this famous saying that you've heard before in Psalm 51, he says this, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. David appeals to God's mercy. And that is our hope because we are equal opportunity sinners, every single one of us. And the only way we'll be saved is appealing to God's mercy and grace in Jesus Christ. We're not trying to put religious steps and good works to salvation. But we're trying to push the cross of Christ, the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus for salvation, grace through faith. Talked to my son yesterday, my oldest son on his birthday. He is currently in a Muslim country in a town of 60,000 with one church of 10 people. So if you're going to minister to Muslims in a, uh, a town of 60,000 and you have one church of 10 people, what, 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 what's your hope? What are you going to give out? Are you going to give self-righteous religion? Be a good person? No, people need gospel men and gospel women to give out grace and forgiveness in Jesus. And I know that there are some of you in here that not only you may be self-righteous, but you also know that you've done some pretty bad things and you're hoping that somehow the good is gonna outweigh the bad and that's not going to be the case. But the good news for you and the good news for me is that we can admit that we are sinners in need of forgiveness in Jesus. And the question is asked once again, what right do you have right now to take this meal? And the answer is not because you've gone to confirmation class or you've walked an aisle or you've been baptized or you've been doing the good religious things. I ask you once again, what right do you have to take this meal? And you, the answer may surprise you. And here's the answer. I have every right to take this meal because this meal is only for sinners. This meal is only for repentant sinners who have trusted Jesus Christ. And I want to push this home to you even more. 
before we take this meal together, I want you to feel like you have a right to come to a meal that acknowledges your sin and receives forgiveness so that you're not going to take this meal by checking off all the good things that you've done, but by looking to all the goodness of Jesus. And so where you're at right now, can we, can we just all just bow our heads and close our eyes? And, and I want you to meditate on something I've, I've heard recently that really has struck me that I think it's important for us to think this way before we take this meal. And I want you to listen to this. The question is, what right do you have to take this meal? We have this right because Jesus came not for the strong, but for the weak. Not for the righteous, but for sinners. Not for the self-sufficient, but for those who know they need rescue. To all who are weary and need rest. To all who mourn and long for comfort. To all who feel worthless and wonder if God even cares. To all who are weak and frail and desire strength. To all who sin and need a savior. Jesus welcomes into his circle, adopts into his family, and reserves a place at his table. For he is the mighty friend of sinners, the ally of his enemies, the one who is going to defend you when you're indefensible, the one who says, I'm out of excuses, the inexcusable. He is the justifier of those who have no excuse left. We hope you enjoyed this message. It was preached recently at Village Bible Church. You can hear this message or let others know about it by visiting our website at vbchsv.org or call us at 922-0404. Guided. By God's Meanwhile, word. have a blessed day as you walk along the way.